That was righteous. <laughs> so, Lord God, we ask that you would help us to preach in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my first date with Susan Coleman in 1978, Susan Coleman, who is now Susan Hyatt, and I remember everything about that date. I remember the way she smelled. I remember the way the hair sat on her shoulders. I took her to see Close Encounters of the third kind at the Cooper Theater on Colorado Boulevard, and it was sold out. So we went next door and saw another movie, an awful movie. So after the movie, I said, well, would you like to go see uh, the late showing of Close Encounters? And she said, yes. During the first movie, I had managed to get my arm around Susan's shoulder, and I was so thrilled about that Close Encounter that I just jumped at the opportunity for another close encounter. So during close encounters of the third kind, the late showing, I put my arm around her once again. About halfway through the movie, she said, is your arm getting tired? Do you want to move your arm? And I said, no, it's just fine. There was no way that I was moving my arm. It's just fine. It feels fine. But it didn't feel fine. It felt like knives were being jammed into my shoulder all the way down my arm. But I thought, there is no way I'm moving my arm. And then I discovered I couldn't move my arm. <laughs> I mean, it literally went numb from the base of my neck all the way to the fingertips. So I had to, excuse me, this is our first date, reach around her like this, pick it up over her head, sit on my lap, and slap it till the blood began to flow in my arm once again. On our second date, I worked, it was amazing there was a second date, but I worked like crazy on the second date. I prepared a picnic, I cleaned the car, I took her up to the horse pasture up near Evergreen where our family kept our horse, but we couldn't catch the horse, so we ended up having a picnic on a rock under a tree and spent the entire time talking about death because my old best friend Bobby Vandekoppel had died the week before in a, in a car accident. And we talked and talked and talked, and I was absolutely stricken with her. On our third date, I took her snowshoeing. Uh, my mom helped me prepare this, this picnic. Uh, on the way up to, to Frisco, we stopped on the top of Loveland Pass, and she hiked with me in tennis shoes midwinter to the top of a 13,000-foot peak. And I remember looking at her and thinking, oh, my Lord, what an incredible woman. Now, of course, she was conning me. That was the last mountain Susan ever climbed. She hates climbing mountains, but it was a beautiful con because she did it for me. She did it in order to be, to be with me. She disciplined herself in, in, in hope of being with me. Then we snowshoed at my Uncle Chuck's uh, cabin. We snowshoed through the woods, and then we had a picnic in the treehouse that I played in as a little boy. I, I'd never do that on my own, but you see, I wanted to be with her. And I thought that that might just float her boat. <laughs> and it did. It was awesome. Euphoria is what it was. Adults often look down on that first love and discount it as puppy love. We probably discount it because it hurts too much to remember it. 
And we think, well, maybe I'll never, ever experience it again. On our fourth day, we went to the Sadie Hawkins dance. In a James Bond-like romance-induced fog, I remember I gunned the car out of the parking lot across Broadway and hit a median that I hadn't seen. We went flying over this cement median in, in my dad's green capri. When we landed on the other side, I act like, oh, I meant to do that, but I knew I was in trouble because the crossbar on the steering wheel was no longer like this. It was like this. I'd bent the frame. It was really bad. And she still liked me. She still liked me. By our fifth date, I was feeling pretty confident and figured that I had things under control, and so we just went to, to a movie. On our sixth date, we went to a movie. On our seventh date, we went to a movie. Eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth, thirteenth, fourteenth, fifteenth. And it was along about then that I said, you know, maybe we ought to date other people too. An anonymous author wrote this. Their wedding picture mocked them from the table, these two who, uh, whose minds no longer touched each other. Somewhere between the oldest child's first tooth and the youngest daughter's graduation, they lost each other. Throughout the years, each slowly unraveled that tangled ball of string called self. But as they tugged at stubborn knots, each hid his or her searching from the other. Sometimes she cried at night and begged the whispering darkness to tell her who she was. He lay beside her, snoring like a hibernating bear, unaware of her winter. Once, after they had made love, he wanted to tell her how afraid he was of dying. But fearful to show his naked soul, he spoke instead of the beauty of her body. She took a course in modern art, trying to find herself in colors splashed upon a canvas, complaining to the other women about men who are insensitive. He climbed into a tomb called The Office, wrapped his mind in a shroud of paper figures, and buried himself in customers. Slowly the wall between them rose, cemented by the mortar of indifference. One day, reaching out to touch each other, they found a barrier they could not penetrate. And recoiling from the coldness of the stone, each retreated from the stranger on the other side. And then he writes this, When love dies, it is not in a moment of angry battle, not when fiery bodies lose their heat. It lies panting, exhausted, expiring, at the bottom of a wall it could not scale. They lost hope. No longer lovers, but roommates. At best, roommates. Each trapped in a prison of resentment and failure that we call the self. <laughs> the illusion of our own sovereignty. Last week, we noted that Jesus is waking us up from the dream of our own sovereignty, of our own absolute control. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, writes St. Paul, and Christ will shine on you. Revelation, Apocalypsis 2.1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now that is quite a picture. You remember last week, Jesus uh, revealed that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And the seven stars in his strong right hand 
are the seven angels of those seven churches. So get the picture. Jesus, the star man, remember we talked about that last week, Jesus, the star man, is talking to the seven stars in his right hand as he walks among the churches that in fact are lampstands. Lampstands in that day held lamps. Uh, lamps, just like the seven lamps on the seven lampstands that became one, like a menorah, uh, before the throne of God in chapter, in chapter four. Uh, torches of fire also traded lamps on, on, on the lampstands before the, throne, before the throne of God. The seven lamps of fire are the seven spirits of God, which are the seven eyes of the Lamb. That's what we'll read in a couple chapters. Seven lamps burned on the seven lampstands in the holy place in the tabernacle or the temple. They were to shine their light on the, the bread of the presence and the altar of incense and the veil that covered the throne of God on top of the ark and the one who abides on that throne. And now to make things even weirder, okay, so you have a vague idea of that picture. To make things even weirder, it turns out that we are that. We are Christ's temple. We are his body and his bride. Now he goes walking among the lampstands, just as he walked in the garden, calling to the man and the woman, saying, where are you? He wanted to be with them, remember? But they were hiding behind a veil. Catacalypto, they were veiled. Apocalypto means to unveil or reveal. Revelation, apocalypsis, 2-1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus the star man talks to the star angel in his hand, angel which means messenger. So in the Old Testament, men are angels. God is even called an angel or his word is called an angel. Uh, Jesus talks to the, to the star angel in his hand and then he says this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Eden means pleasure or delight. Paradise was a Persian word that uh, literally meant garden of delight or garden of 
pleasure. Adam and Eve were catacalypto, veiled to that pleasure, when they took fruit of the knowledge of good and evil from a tree in the middle of the garden. It was then that they veiled themselves with fig leaves. And then God veiled the way to the tree of life in the middle of the garden. And then he veiled the way, the truth, and the life that would rest on top of the ark between the, the cherubim. Israel was commanded to worship in front of that veil before the bread of the presence and the altar of incense under the seven golden lampstands. But now to the one who conquers, the way to the life that hangs on the tree of life in the midst of the garden is unveiled. As if the veil ripped from the top to the bottom. Now, I need to say that I'm kind of, I'm sorry to talk this this way because it makes us uncomfortable, but the revelation ends with a marriage feast. And a Jewish marriage feast was all about two unveiled people celebrating a communion of delight and a covenant of body and blood that would then produce fruit that is more life. Jesus is the groom, and the church is the bride, and love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faith, and self-controlled by love is the fruit of that communion. Isaiah 62, 5, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. But now, Jesus mourns as he walks among the lampstands saying, you've abandoned the love you had at first. Isn't that incredible? It's incredible, I think, partly because this is the first order of business that Jesus has for the church. This is the first letter uh, about the church. It's first order of business. For Jesus, this is the foundational issue. You're a dutiful spouse. You, you take care of the kids. You, you teach them what's right, and you teach them what's, what's wrong. You care for it all. But I, I, I wonder if you, if you care for me. I want you so deeply. And it seems you don't want me anymore. You sense how painful and how humiliating this must have been for our Lord. And do you hear what he's saying? Baby, baby, I get down on my knees for you. Boom, 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 boom. If you would only love me like you used to do, yeah. As I mentioned, I'm sorry to talk this way because it's very painful for some. And I'm sorry to talk this way because I think at times I've been insensitive to that pain. It was about 40 years before Ephesus received the revelation from Jesus that they had received another letter from St. Paul. It was in that letter to the Ephesians that Paul wrote, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. And then he wrote this, We are members of Christ's body. Therefore, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ 
and the church. He's pointing out that God made ha-adam, man, male and female, and told them to commune in the garden of delight, for it was to reference the communion that Christ desires with us, his bride, in the eternal covenant of his love. So you see, it makes complete sense that the evil one would do all he can to mar the reference so he would also mar our conception of the substance and make us miss the substance, which is Christ. In the 21st century, we have all sorts of debates about how the evil one does that, just as they had all sorts of debates about how the evil one did that in the first century. But the point is that each of us was made for intimate communion in a covenant of delight. We all long for that communion. And at times, we all despair of ever finding it or experiencing it. But we were each made for it. And so all your longings and satisfactions, the good ones, the bad ones, the, the wounds and the delights, they all tell you something about Jesus and his, his love. They are a physical reference to a spiritual reality. We each have a physical body. I think you've noticed that. And we're destined, according to Scripture, to have a spiritual body. The spiritual is not less real than the physical, but more real. The spiritual is also not about less intimate communion than the phys physical, but, but, but more, more intimate communion. Your physical body only feels its own pleasure and pain, right? Your body only feels its own pleasure and pain. It's the kingdom of your own sovereignty. But even now, your spirit can feel the pain and the pleasure of another person that you, that you love. Sexuality is so powerful for it's a physical communion beyond the boundaries of our own self-centered kingdom of control. A communion that is somehow life and creates life. Like Paul writes, the two become one flesh. So, so for a moment, one feels in, in the body another's delight, another's pleasure. It's a communion of delight as two self-centered, autonomous, physical bodies are unveiled, surrender their sovereignty, and become one. And yet, it's a reference. So you have a physical body that can become one with another body in a communion of delight in the covenant of love, but you will receive a spiritual body that will be part of one great body and even now becomes one spirit with Christ. We can barely even begin to imagine the ecstatic joy of that reality that is our destiny. But God has created in our very flesh a reference. Please, please don't get hung up on the reference. But please, please, please learn from the reference. You will lose the reference. Have you noticed that? You'll lose it. You will lose the reference and you will gain the reality. Don't get hung up. But please see how Satan tries to hang us up. The problem with sexuality is that it works. Two bodies really become one flesh. That's called marriage. It is a covenant. 
Satan tempts us to break that covenant, for when we do, we break a living body. Then in our pain, we renounce the intimate communion that we were all made for, that we all long for. We do that by shutting down our hearts and retreating into our own self-centered kingdom of control. Sometimes people do that by becoming promiscuous. In other words, they try to divorce the physical communion from the spiritual communion, which in the end destroys both. And then sometimes those very same people discover religion, and they think religion means giving up hope in any form of intimate communion at all. They think Christianity is all about gaining control, when in fact it's all about surrendering our illusion of control to the great bridegroom. The great bridegroom longs to take delight in his bride. But he will not take delight until she surrenders delight. Because his delight is her delight. And her delight is his delight. It's a communion of delight. It's ecstasy. Satan hates ecstasy. And so he will tempt us to immorality, which is broken communion. He will tempt us to immorality, and then he will tempt us to morality. And by that, I mean faith in the law. He'll whisper into your soul, since your heart was raped, never surrender it again. Guard your naked heart. Guard it with laws. Keep it prim and proper. Maintain absolute control over the sovereign little kingdom of your soul. And this is what Jesus is for. He came to guard the borders of your kingdom so that locked away inside your sovereign kingdom of control, you might never, ever, ever be hurt again. And above all, do not surrender your shame. Don't you ever let anyone touch it. Most of all, Jesus, because he's, he's good, and he will despise your evil. Keep your shame safe behind the veil. Catacalypto. Now, you may never have been physically promiscuous, but we have all been spiritually promiscuous. We have all trusted the lies of the ancient serpent, broken the heart of God, covered our shame, veiled our souls, and hidden in the trees. We've hidden in the illusion of our own sovereignty. The dream that we need no one's help but our own. In his novel, The Hideous Strength, C.S. Lewis uh, talks about this director. There's a director that counsels a young woman struggling in her marriage. At one point, he says this, there's no escape. If it were the virginal rejection of the male, God would allow it. Such souls can bypass the male and go on to meeting something higher up, to which they must make a yet deeper surrender. But your trouble has been what old poets call dongler. We call it pride. You are offended by the masculine itself the loud, eruptive, possessive thing, the gold lion, the bearded bull, which breaks through hedges and scatters the little kingdom of your primness. The male you could have escaped, for it exists only on the biological level. But the masculine, none of us can escape. 
What is above and beyond all things is so masculine that we are all feminine in relation to it. You had better agree with your adversary quickly. You mean I shall have to become a Christian, said Jane? It looks like it, said the director. The church today doesn't talk about this very much, I don't think, but we are the bride of Christ betrothed to Jesus the Christ. Why? <laughs> so that he would provide us with a two-car garage and a nice kitchen? So that he would guard uh, your prim and proper little kingdom? Is that why? He did not hang on a cross and bear the pain of hell so you would be regular in your devotions. Go on one mission project a year with, with Paul and be a faithful tither. He suffered and died and bore hell in order to win your heart so that you would surrender your sovereignty to his sovereignty, that you would surrender to a communion of delight in his covenant of love. But Satan... Satan has made you fear the deepest longings of your own soul so that you would spurn the Lord's advances and turn him into a roommate or even better, a border guard. Jesus writes, I see your works. I see your faithful endurance. I see your orthodoxy. Thank you. And you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. I hate their works too. We don't know, but the Nicolaitans may have been a group that taught Christians to be sexually promiscuous, as we'll read about in, in Pergamum in just a couple paragraphs. Jesus is saying, thank you, Ephesus. Thank you for hating immorality. Thank you for hating passion out of bounds. But my dear, you have come to hate passion in bounds. You cook, you clean, you take care of the children, and I'm absolutely convinced you'd never, ever, ever give your passion to another. But what's the point? You never give it to me. You have abandoned, you have forsaken the love we had at first. You know, we can philosophize and theologize all day about the meaning of love, but if you've ever been in a relationship, if you've ever been in a relationship, the pain, the sorrow, the joy, the struggle, you know what Jesus is talking about. You never close your eyes anymore when I kiss you your lips and there's no tenderness like before in your fingertips you're trying hard not to show it baby but baby baby i know it you've lost that love and feeling And we say, well, I can't control my feelings. But that's not entirely true, is it? I've been married to Susan now 34 and a half years. And we've been hanging out together for 40. And let me tell you that we've had to fight, really fight for that loving feeling. Not at first, but after the sixth or seventh date, we had to start fighting. And I hope you know that I'm talking about far more than sexual attraction. I'm talking about intimacy, physical and even more spiritual, spiritual communion. It's been a fight for passion, and it has cost me a lot of energy and mostly pride. 
At times I've had to get down on my knees and cry out to God and even beg Susan. One time, 25 years ago, was particularly hard. She was nursing our fourth child, uh, Coleman, and raising our children largely alone because I was always busy at church or at work in my office. But after the kids were in bed, I was desperate for her affections, and I mean any affection, a hug, a kiss, a smile. She would say things like, well, Peter, I just don't express myself that way. And I would think, you used to express yourself that way. She would say, I cook, I clean, I take care of the children. That's how I say I love you. But I knew the truth. She was growing tired of the fight, fighting for passion. And it was a fight for her because I can be very critical, self-centered, strong, and demanding, and not very easy to love. Well, during that time, I remember I would stay awake all night sometimes, just angry and frustrated, not knowing what to do with my feelings. She might agree to do what I wanted her to do, but she wouldn't feel what I wanted her to feel. Her heart would be far from me. I couldn't demand delight. And her delight is my delight. That's what I wanted, a communion of delight. To tell her how I felt was utterly humiliating. Susan, even though you don't long for me, I still long for you. I sit awake all night. I watch you while you're sleeping, just wishing, hoping, and praying that you'd wake up. Receive my love. Let my love shine on you. During that time, there were nights I remember thinking to myself, Peter, just give up. Just give up. Give up on being lovers and just settle on being roommates. Late one night, when I was no longer strong, but just felt incredibly weak, I wrote my wife a letter, and in the letter, I just shared my broken heart. That was the night that I decided to love Susan more than my ego. It was the death of my ego. It's not easy to say to someone, I want you more than anything in this world, and I want you so much to want me, but I don't think you do anymore. Did you know that Jesus loves you more than his ego? I don't know if he ever had an ego, but he did. if he did have an ego, I'm, I'm pretty sure that we nailed it to a tree in the middle of a garden. He most certainly had a body. It was broken for you. The life spilled out for you. The spirit was delivered up for you. You do realize that Jesus is the Word of God that is God, that has all power and dominion, and now he sends this letter to his sleeping bride. I have this against you. That sounds so demanding, but listen to what he has against them. I don't think you like me anymore. What does God Almighty want from you? This is shocking. He wants you to like him the way he likes you. 
freely, passionately, relentlessly, absolutely. I wrote Susan a letter, and, and several times, she's, you can go ask her about this because she's down in the entryway. She reminded me of that letter because that letter gave her hope. It was a new beginning for us. We began to do some of the things that we did at first, and then we began to feel some of the things that we felt at first. According to some scholars, Ephesus means desired one. My desired one. Remember what we had. Repent and do the things you did at first. So, Bride of Christ, what were the things you did at first. Maybe the Lord is saying something like this to you. Remember those hikes we used to take? You probably didn't think of them as like anything remotely religious, but you thought about me nonstop the entire way. Could you take another hike like that? Oh, remember how you used to stay up late reading your Bible? <laughs> and you memorized parts of it. Well, maybe you could do that. Remember how you used to sing songs to me. Maybe you could sing a song to me. Sing it to me. Remember how every week you couldn't wait to come to worship. Hear about me. Talk about me. Listen for me. Commune with me. Now, I need to say that I'm always very cautious about encouraging worship attendance because I, Peter Hyatt, have ulterior motives. But you see, that was one of the things that we did at first. Every week, we disciplined ourselves to, to go on a date, and, and the discipline didn't really feel like discipline, but that's, that's what it was. You, you know, Jesus is with you all the time, but once a week, go on a date. Discipline yourself in hope. If you discipline yourself in fear and shame, you'll end up hating Jesus. But if you discipline yourself in the hope of loving Jesus, well, you're already loving Jesus, and, and you'll begin to feel more and more and more love for Ephesus. Ephesus, do the things you did at first. So wouldn't you like to know the things they did at first? People always want me to tell them what to do. That has surprised me as a pastor. People really want that. They want me to tell them what to do, just as I'm always asking Jesus, what do you want me to do? Just what do you want me to do? So wouldn't you like to know the things that they did at first? Because he says, do the things that you did at first, that they did at first, and we really don't know exactly what they did at first, and maybe that's good, because if we did know what they did at first, we'd probably start a denomination called the True Fellowship of Those That Do the Things They, they Did at First. Incorporated. And actually, we do have an idea of some of the things they did at first. You can read about them in Acts chapter 19. And actually, folks have started denominations based on what they did at first. In Acts 19, we read about 12 Ephesians that were baptized in the Spirit and spoke in tongues. And people have started a lot of denominations that say, to be part of us, you have to speak in tongues. And I, at first, that was one of the things I did that I still do a lot. I pray in tongues. It's, it's, it's wonderful. But people have started, then Paul, then Paul argues with Jews. People have started denominations based on arguing with Jews. Then Paul reasons daily for two years in the hall of Tyrannus, and all sorts of denominations are about that, founding schools and judge other people for not doing just that. Then 12 sons of the high priest try to cast a demon out of a fellow, doing just what Paul did at first, and the demon literally strips them, chases them out of a house, and yells at them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? 
See, the demon didn't care about what they did. It cared about who they knew. And isn't that the point? Paul had a relationship with Jesus. At first, the Ephesians had a relationship with Jesus. You can read about it in Acts 19. It was confusing. It was messy. It took a lot of work because that's how relationships are. That's the way they are. But they did what they did because they had met Jesus, fallen in love with Jesus, and they wanted to know Jesus. They had a relationship with Jesus. At one point, Acts 19, church even turned into a riot in the theater in Ephesus. You can read about it tonight. But now, 40 years later, they had everything under control. Control. Right doctrine, right practice, right discipline, and a cold heart. Did you notice that my passion for Susan in high school grew cold when all I did was the very thing I did at first? I took her to movies. I remember everything about our first date, but I don't remember anything about dates number six through like 50, when I thought our relationship was under control. And so all I had to do was just do what I did at first. And yet it wasn't what I did at first, was it? If I do the things I did at first, because someone told me that I have to do the things I did at first, then I'm not doing the things I did at first. No one had to tell me at first. I saw Susan, and I just did what I did at first. At first, I did anything and everything that I thought might get me closer to Susan. I mean, I worked hard on our relationship. I worked hard in hope. I disciplined myself in hope, and I didn't even think of it as discipline. What I didn't want to do, well, I did want to do because I thought it might get me closer to Susan. That's hope. That's hope. So if you have any hope in Jesus, I'm saying work on your relationship. Go for a walk. Talk to him like you used to. Stay up late reading your Bible like, like you used to. Sing louder. Don't miss worship services. Seek Jesus. Okay, listen closely. Seek him with because people are, I, this drives me nuts when people say, well, it's really not about your mind, but seek him with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. Seek him, and then it doesn't matter much what exactly you do, but that you care to do it. You know, Susan really didn't care about the movie or trying to catch the horse or climbing a mountain or wrecking my dad's car. She cared that I cared so very much for her. So if you have any hope in Jesus, work on your relationship with Jesus. But what do we do if a person has no hope? What do you say to a bride who's lost hope? Susan, you are a disciplined wife, but I have this against you. You don't like me. Therefore, you must go with me to close encounters of the third kind. Then you must try to catch a horse, have a picnic on a rock under a tree instead, and talk to me for a long time about death. Then you must climb a 13,000-foot mountain in midwinter and act like you enjoy it. Then you must distract me with your beauty such that I bend the frame on my father's car. Or I'll remove your lampstand. 
Love me the way I love you, or I'll come to you and remove your lampstand. How do you say that to a person? Well, Jesus is not saying that to a person. <laughs> That's what's so incredible about this. Persons are overhearing Jesus say this to a star in his strong right hand. The light of the world is talking to a light in his hand as he walks among the lampstands. The star man is talking to a star that is an angelos, angel or messenger. The messenger, he's talking to the messenger, and the messenger is sent to each church. So Jesus delivers the message to the messenger, and then Jesus says this, let him who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The message to the messenger is imparted to us, the church, by the Spirit, who in two chapters is called a lamp, a lampus, a torch of fire, who must then, don't you see, must then must be the lamp in our lampstand. The seven angels must somehow be the seven spirits of God sent out in all the earth, which, which means we're overhearing a conversation between God the Son and God the Spirit about each of us, his church, his body, his temple, his bride, his lampstand. We're overhearing Jesus talk to his own spirit about his relationship with us, his hurts, his sorrows, his hopes, his, his dreams, his choice that must become our choice if we are to, in fact, conquer. We overhear Jesus talking to the stars, which are flames of fire, which are lampus lamps. See, I think Jesus is fixing to put the lamps in the lampstands. And so as we've preached, as you've heard the word, did you feel any hope at any point? I know you felt a lot of pain, but at any point did you feel a little bit of hope? The, the hope might have been weak. It might have felt broken. It might seem inconsequential, but, but hope. Colossians 1, Paul talks about the mystery hidden for ages and generations. He says it's this, Christ in us, the hope of glory. You see, hope in you is Christ in you. When I wrote Susan that letter, the thing that gave her hope was not suggestions for activities that we could do. Like, oh, I never thought of that. that would be... It was the revelation that my heart was broken for her. And when she saw my heart, it changed everything she did. What if you actually saw God's heart broken for you? Well, the church is to overhear a conversation that Jesus has with himself, and then she is to read aloud and hear the vision that Jesus is sending. In the vision, they see a slaughtered lamb. The Jews had been slaughtering lambs in the temple for a thousand years, and now they see that the Lion of Judah is the slaughtered lamb standing on the throne uh, that had been covered behind a veil. The slaughtered lamb conquers the kings of the earth, the beast, the great harlot, the ancient dragon, all in preparation for us, to be married to us, his bride. 
His bride is a city, and she has no need of the sun because the lamb is her lamp. Lampus. The lamb is her lamp, and she is his lampstand. He conquers, and she conquers with him. Their relationship, their communion conquers all things. Right now, it may seem so incredibly weak, like a, like a broken heart or a slaughtered lamb, but hope in you, hope in you, even if it's the size of a seed, hope in you is Christ in you. Be with him. Think about him. Talk to him. Work on your relationship with him. Delight in him as he delights in you. And that's what it is to conquer sin, death, hell, the father of lies, and this entire cursed world. And so he took bread, and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. And he took the cup, saying, this is the covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you. Do you see what he's saying? Baby, baby, I climbed up on this tree for you. If you would only love me the way that I love you, yeah. Let him who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. As we were singing, I was thinking of this day back in about 19, early 80s. Susan and I drove up on Vail Pass. We went up Shrine Pass, and it was just beautiful that day. And I remember at one point looking at Susan and thinking to myself, I can die now. Um, God, she loves me. Thank you. From here on out, nothing matters. I can die now. No matter what this world does to me, I'll be okay because I just experienced this. Uh, God, this world has lost its power over me. And then, of course, we drove down the mountain, had a bunch of fights, had four kids, jobs, got old. <laughs> but it was a reference. It was a reference. Because, see, God was also speaking to me through the reference and through the sunrise and through the flowers and through the mountains, and he was saying, Peter, I love you. And you see, if I could ever get a really good glimpse of that, if I could really see that, that, that the Creator loves me in such a relentless and furious way, well, this world would lose its power over me, wouldn't it? Your opinions of me would lose their power over me. Uh, my suffering, my sorrow would lose its power over me. Uh, I would, in effect, conquer the world because of this love that I knew deep, deep, deep down in my heart. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And when you're with him, you overcome the world too. And get this, the evil one knows that. He knows that. 
He's not afraid of your religious rituals, but he is afraid of the hope you have in your heart for Jesus, the love you have in your heart for Jesus, the faith you have in your heart for Jesus. To you, it seems small, like a little seed, inconsequential, weak, and powerless, but the evil one knows that it's the life that flows from the throne, and nothing is more powerful. So in Jesus' name, believe the gospel and work on your relationship. Amen.